Today's sermon is titled, Faith Through Fear. Faith Through Fear. So let's get real for a second here. Uh, what are you afraid of? Like genuinely, not, not, not spiders, not heights, not snakes, like underneath all of that, not the surface level fears, but the heart level fears. Let me just kind of share mine for a second. I, I fear that one day I'm gonna have to bury my wife or one of my kids. Like that's a genuine fear that I have within me. I fear that this church plant will not succeed. Like we have put literal blood, sweat, and tears into this thing. And I've put so much of my value in this thing, which is not godly, but I've done it, you know? And I'm afraid if it fails and I'll be a fraud or I'll be an imposter. I'm afraid that one day we'll lose everything, our belongings, our home, our security, our material, all of those things that keeps me up at night. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of a coming diagnosis or a recent diagnosis? Are you afraid of loss or of death? Are you afraid of, of losing your reputation, whatever that means? Are, are you afraid of your kids being wayward? Are you afraid of loneliness or singleness? Are you afraid of not having a spouse or not having a child? Are you afraid of not finding that job or not getting that promotion? What are you afraid of? You know, in this story that we just read, the disciples encountered the most terrifying thing in the ancient world, nature. Nature was entirely uncontrollable for the disciples and nature is still uncontrollable for us today. We don't know when the next big one's gonna come in California. We don't know when that volcano's going to erupt. We don't know when the next tornado's gonna go ripping through Oklahoma or Missouri. Nature is outside of our control. And the truth is underneath all fear is a lack of control. We are faced with our own mortality and our own lack of control. And it shows itself in the things that we're afraid of. I cannot control my wife's health. I cannot control the health of my children. I cannot control the success or failure of this church. Those things are entirely out of my control. And outside of your control is a diagnosis or a death or a loss or being lonely or being, all of those things are outside of our control. And yet, just because things are outside of our control, do not mean they are out of control. You understand the difference there? Because we can't control those things doesn't mean no one can. And what we see in the story that I just read is a good savior named Jesus Christ who is sovereign over all things, in control over all things, and he is ministering in the midst of all things. And when things are out of our control, they are perfectly within his control. So here's the main point for today's text. We need not fear because we have faith in Jesus. We need not fear because we have faith in Jesus, okay? So I had seven points I was gonna walk through today in six verses, uh, but I'm gonna try and, and, and kind of do it on, you know, I'm just gonna go for it. We're good? Everyone give me a thumbs up, we're good? Give me, a, if you're willing, give me a thumbs down. I'm just kidding, don't give me a thumbs down. Oh, Rick, you wanna borrow this Dodgers hat? I'm gonna sweat right through this thing. Who does this belong to? Is this yours, Greg? Lucas, man, we got the same size dome. <laughs> I love it. All right, first lesson. 
Seven lessons from this text. Jesus governs every single detail of our life. Jesus governs every single detail of our life. Think about the setting that we're in. So Jesus has just finished in Mark chapter four, a long and full day of preaching and of praying and of presence with people, ministering to people. And then he initiates the disciples and says, let's, let's go somewhere else. Let's get some rest. Now look at your Bible, Mark chapter four, 35 and 36. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, here's a question. Do you think Jesus led the disciples onto that boat without knowing that a storm was coming? Of course, Jesus knew a storm was coming. Jesus is God. And this is exactly where he led the disciples. And think about this for a second. The disciples, they have dropped their nets. They have followed Jesus. They have obeyed all of his commands. They have served him. They have done everything Jesus has asked them to do. And then Jesus says, get on this boat, knowing that a great storm was gonna arise and that their lives would be in danger. Listen, to be a true Christian is this. Our sins are pardoned fully, through the blood of Jesus Christ and that alone. We are secure in his promises. We are secure in the finished work of Jesus. There is a day coming when we will be resurrected and all the storms of life will be gone. All the trials of life will be gone. All the sin in this world will be gone. And yet we are not there yet. And Jesus has never promised any of his disciples an affliction-free world. Jesus has never promised that. And, and yet we see in the midst of this story and across the scriptures that Jesus governs every detail of our lives. Now, theologically, we call this the providence of God. This is called the providence of God. Listen to John Piper's definition of providence. Providence is the act of, and here's the key word, purposefully providing for, sustaining, and governing the world. Nothing is out of control. Jesus is purposely doing everything, governing, sustaining, providing for this whole world. We see this all across the scriptures. Ephesians 1 says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Jesus is in charge and everything works out according to his purposes. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Jeremiah 10, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. God directs our steps. And then James 4, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Let me say this. Nothing should melt the fear in our life quite like the providence of Jesus. Nothing should produce a deeper comfort in the most inmost place of our souls, quite like knowing Jesus purposely governs every single detail of our lives. Why? Well, first, because we know the character of God. He is good. 
Jesus is not passively governing this world like some kind of cruel warlord. Jesus is actively and intimately involved in every single detail of our lives. And as he purposes things according to his will, he is doing so in a good way, a glorifying way to his name in a way that is good and joyful for us. And second, we know that the providence of God is good news because we know that in the midst of life, God is shaping us. In Jesus governing our lives, he isn't just doing stuff around us, he's doing stuff in us. He's not just governing the circumstances of this world, he's governing the postures of our hearts. When we face fear, whether it be job loss or a diagnosis or a nasty divorce or a failing business, God is not uncaring to leave us alone. He is shaping us in the midst of it. Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle. By affliction, he, that's Jesus, teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Jesus is governing every detail of our life, including the affliction, just like the disciples. And yet we can press into trust because Jesus is good and Jesus is shaping us. Point number two, Jesus knows exactly what we're going through. One of the reasons why I love the gospel of Mark is because it's highlighting the humanity of Jesus. Not only do we see Jesus as authoritative and as God, but we see Jesus as man. We see Jesus in this story. Let me remind you, this isn't just some kind of metaphor. This isn't this is a made up story. This is the one true story with a real Jesus in the flesh in real historical events. And what we've seen all throughout the gospels is that Jesus gets tired. Jesus gets hungry. Jesus gets thirsty. Jesus faces the whole gamut of emotions in life. And in this story, all that Jesus wanted to do was go out on a boat, get away from some people and take a nap. Anyone ever been there? I got to get away and I got to take a nap. I'm going to do that this afternoon if I'm being honest. Jesus just wanted to take a nap. Now, why is this good news that Jesus is a man? That Jesus is God in the flesh. Because whatever we're fearing in this world, Jesus has already seen it. Jesus has already experienced it. And the better news is that Jesus sees you. Individually, Jesus sees you. And Jesus knows what you're facing and he knows what you're going through. It's in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, that we learn that Jesus is our great high priest who has faced everything we have faced and he has done so perfectly. And because of that, he and he alone is qualified to sympathize with us in our circumstances and to minister to us in the storms of our lives. Like, are you facing temptation to sin? Jesus faced that and he came out on the other side. Perfect. He can carry you through your temptation. Are you facing trials in this world? Jesus endured all trials faithfully. Are you facing opposition? Jesus weathered all opposition joyfully. Are you facing questions in this world? Jesus has answered every question sufficiently for us. Jesus has faced it all. And here's just how loving Jesus is. As the perfect God-man, he willingly went to the cross to unite man and God. Man opposed 
opposed God in our sin. And Jesus came and dwelt among us and lived perfectly and went to a cross, bore our sin, bore our wrath. And 1 Timothy 2 tells us there is one God and one mediator, the man Jesus Christ who can unite man back to God. We can't do that on our own. And Jesus came and did it for us. He has solved our greatest problem. So we know that he alone is uniquely qualified to minister to us in all the storms of our lives. He sees you, he knows you, he cares for you, and he is carrying you through this life. Point number three, just because you don't sense Jesus doesn't mean he's not there. Just because you can't sense Jesus in your world does not mean he is not there, okay? So this windstorm breaks out. And they're on these tiny, ancient wooden boats in the Sea of Galilee, and the the wind is crashing, the waves are crashing. Mind you, at least four of the disciples were really experienced fishermen, right? And if you've ever watched Deadliest Catch on Discovery Channel, the really experienced fishermen, they know when the storms are coming, and they know when to go back to the dock. It's the rookies that get themselves in danger. Why? Because they think that they can conquer the storm, and they can't. These experienced fishermen, fishermen on this boat as the wind was coming and the waves were crashing, they would have known, man, we got to get back to dry ground. We got to get back to safety. What's up, Lainey? I got to put that in my notes every week. It's one of my favorite things that happens every Sunday. These fishermen would have known, man, we got to get back to do this. What's up, buddy? You're wearing Brendan's pants. I'm proud of you, son. Thanks for telling me that right now. This could not be better timing. Yeah, I love it. Okay, if you're going to stand there, we can do this thing. All right, now, these experienced fishermen would have said, let's go. But they weren't in charge. Jesus was. Read verse 38 with me. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Here's what I want you to see. That first word there, but. It's meant to show contrast. While the disciples are panicking, full of fear, and ready to run, Jesus in contrast, is asleep on the stern. If you've ever seen the Rembrandt painting called The Disciples on the Sea of Galilee, or what you see is all the fear and panic in their faces and Jesus just calmly sitting there. So the disciples, they rush to Jesus. They wake him up and they actually speak a word of rebuke to Jesus. When you read that line, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What they're actually doing is rebuking the Lord of all things. What they were saying is that Jesus is uncaring What they are saying is that his sleep was proof that he is absent and negligent. Now, here's the lesson for us. Just because we can't sense Jesus doesn't mean he's not there. You see, the disciples demanded that Jesus be panicking and fearful and full of anxiety like them. They were expecting Jesus to want to turn tail and run just like they did. What they were saying is Jesus was uncaring, negligent, and lacked control. And here's the truth. Oftentimes, we find ourselves in circumstances circumstances where we're in over our heads, we're panicking, we're fearful, and we point the finger at Jesus and say, why are you sleeping? Do you not care for me? Why are you negligent? Why are you ignoring me? Jesus, we expect him to minister to us in the way that we demand of him. And what if Jesus didn't want to rescue the disciples from the situation because he's trying to teach them a greater lesson? And what if immediate circumstantial rescue for us causes us to get addicted to the rescuing, not adore the rescuer? You understand what I'm saying? 
What if we get so addicted to just being rescued from our circumstances, we actually miss the one who does the rescue? What if Jesus wants us to press into greater trust of him? What if he's saying, I'm gonna let the winds come. I'm gonna let the waves come. I'm gonna let your tents crash and lose all that money because I want you to trust me. That tents are not your hope, that I am. What if that's the truth Jesus wants us to understand? What if Jesus wanted his disciples to resist fear and panic in order to press into greater degrees of trust? Here's the crux of following Jesus. We want Jesus to do things. Jesus wants us to trust him. The presence of Jesus among us is all we truly need. We could be facing the most dire of circumstances, the most fearful of trials, and yet Jesus is always and forever with us. And he's saying, I'm not gonna do anything. I'm just gonna be with you. And is that enough? It's a question for all of us. What if we take on this posture, faith-filled, prayerful, sustained pursuit of Jesus, even and especially when we don't sense him and we don't see him, trusting that he is good and he is enough. I wanna draw a second lesson out of this same verse, verse 38. So negatively, the disciples rebuke Jesus, but positively, they went to Jesus. So fourth lesson, always run to Jesus with your fears. Always run to Jesus with your fears. Imagine for a second your child or your friend or someone you know is in a really tough luck circumstance and you have the solution and they run to you and they're like, what took you so long? Aren't you gonna help me? You have the solution. Come on, why are you avoiding me? Why are you neglecting me? Why are you ignoring me? What are you gonna do in that situation? Are you gonna kind of pull back, cross your arms and groan a little bit? Like, don't you dare tell me what to do. I mean, you might do that because you're a sinner just like me but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is so different than us. He is gentle and loving and tender in all of the circumstances. And even as Jesus, or even as the disciples run to Jesus and rebuke him, Jesus doesn't get up and say, forget you guys, I'm going back to the boat. What does Jesus do? Jesus gets up and ministers to them and on behalf of them. Because listen, if Peyton runs to me complaining about a problem, I'm at least celebrating she came to me at all. And that's what, that's what the heart of Jesus is for us. Let me, let me do just a little gospel primer on the heart of God for us. Here, here's what the gospel of Jesus tells us. Your sins are paid for in full by the cross of Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. Listen to me. You are forgiven presently and positionally and eternally forgiven. The spirit dwells in you as proof of that and as a down payment for all the future promises of God. There is no condemnation for the child of God. Your future is incredibly bright and nothing, not a thing in this world can ever change that. That's what the gospel tells us. And that's huge. That's how much God loves us. He sent his own son to save us from ourselves and from our sin. And the only way to be saved is to run to Jesus. Now, somehow we've got it stuck in our puny little heads that after salvation, we got to work to maintain our salvation or work to pick ourselves up. And if that was true, listen to me, we'd all be damned, okay? We cannot keep ourselves saved. We cannot pick ourselves up now and forever. But Jesus clings all the more tightly to, to us. That's God's heart for us. That's God's love for us. Now, if that's true, if that's how much God's grace covers our sin and draws us to himself, we should never, ever run from God. We should always run to him. 
A sign of Christian growth in your life is how quickly and how often you run to Jesus. Do you hear that? Let me say that again. A sign of Christian growth in your life is how quickly and how often you run to Jesus. In this situation, the disciples were in over their head and they went to the right person. Listen, are you need help overcoming sin? Run to Jesus. His heart is not uncaring. His heart is ministry. You, you know the gospel. The gospel doesn't change just because you sinned. It's the, it's the sin that you, you commit that requires the gospel love of Jesus. Do you need deliverance from a shameful past? Does it keep you up at night and haunt your dreams? Run to Jesus. He'll wipe away your shame and guilt. Do you need wisdom in a current situation? Run to Jesus. Need faith in fearful times? Run to Jesus. Listen to me. How quickly and how often you run to Jesus shows just how much you understand the heart of God. And just like if Peyton runs to me in a hard up situation and says, I need your help, daddy, my heart bursts for her. In the same way, when we run to Jesus, he doesn't say, man, you're bothering me again. Can't you just let that one go? No, no, no. His heart bursts with love for us because we ran to him. Always run to Jesus. Let's keep moving here. Verse 39, read it with me. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. There was a great calm. You kidding me? Look at that timing. Now, even though the disciples just rebuked Jesus, he does not burn with anger at them. He doesn't even stop and correct them or tell them to leave him alone. Initially, what Jesus does is he doesn't say anything to the disciples. He just gets up, he looks out on the Sea of Galilee, and he says, peace, which is another way to translate that is muzzle or silence. And he speaks to the wave and says, be still. And nature bows the knee to Jesus Christ. Fifth lesson, nothing is too hard for Jesus. Not a single thing is too hard for Jesus. Why is nothing too hard for Jesus? Well, because not only is Jesus the perfect sinless man, Jesus is also God in the flesh. He is the perfect God man united in one person. And when Jesus stills the seas on the lake, he is doing something that only God can do because Jesus is God. Listen to Psalm 107 with me. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. That sounds like Mark 4 to me. He made the storm to be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. That sounds like Mark 4. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. That sounds like Mark 4. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Now, right there, at the beginning of Psalm 107, you see the Lord in all caps. The best way to translate that is Yahweh. That is all the way back in Exodus chapter three when God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am that I am, which is to say God is uncreated. He is without beginning. He is without end. He has limitless power, limitless authority over this world. And it is Yahweh alone, the Lord alone that can speak to nature and make it obey. And when Jesus does that, he is proving I am God and he has all his power encapsulated in a single word, peace 
be still. The truth is the scriptures tell us that Jesus created everything with the world, sustain, with a word, sustains everything with a word, demands obedience even from nature with a single word. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. As we run to Jesus, let us do it with actual, firm, real, steadfast belief that nothing is outside of his power, that with a single word, he can move in our lives and do things that we can't do for ourselves. Nothing is too hard for our savior, Jesus. And let me also remind you this, while nothing is too hard for Jesus, simultaneously, nothing is too small for Jesus. This isn't just about the wind and the waves obeying Jesus. This is about everything in our lives where we're desperate for God to move. Let us run to him. Nothing's too small for him. Like, do you, do you have trouble sleeping? Man, run to Jesus. Do you have a pain in your lower back? Run to Jesus. Do you have a tough conversation coming up or a conflict that needs to be resolved? Run to Jesus. Do you need strength to hold your tongue or resist gossip? Run to Jesus. Do you need release from an addiction or a desire for Jesus only? Go to him. Nothing is too hard and nothing is too small for our savior. Run to him and remember him. Nothing is too hard. Keep moving with me. In the next verse, after delivering the disciples, he's gonna turn to them and he's finally gonna speak to them. And this is where his correct correction comes. Man, if it, I just need to keep preaching verse 39 and the winds are gonna keep, so they, they pick up when I move on from that. All right, verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So Jesus calls out their fear. He calls out our fear finally, and he brings it front and center. He says one question, why are you so afraid? Before the disciples can answer, he keeps going with a second, more invasive question. Have you still no faith? And this immediately would have brought the disciples to their knees. Why? Because when Jesus is asking that second question, all he's saying is, don't you remember my history? Don't you remember when you were with me? Look to the past. The disciples already just in the four chapters of Mark, here's what they've seen. They've seen Jesus get baptized and the spirit descend upon him like a dove. They heard a voice boom from heaven saying, this is my son, I am well pleased with him. They have seen Jesus be driven out into the desert and return perfectly and sinlessly, even though he was tempted by Satan. We, they've seen Jesus heal a demonic man in the synagogue. They've seen Jesus heal many people starting with Simon's mother-in-law. They've seen him make a leper, have no more leprosy. They've, he, they've seen Jesus make a paralytic walk. They've seen him go to Pharisees and correct them and say, I'm authoritative over the law and over your life. And they have most importantly seen Jesus declare that sins are forgiven. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, why are you still afraid? You've witnessed all of this. You've been with me through all of this. How can you be afraid? Do you not think I can't make some waves stop? Do you not think I can't make the wind cease? Why such little faith? Jesus is saying to his disciples, your present and your future faith depends on my past faithfulness. You understand that? Here's what I want us to learn from this. When we don't know the future, let's look to the past. We don't know the future, let's look to the past. Listen to me, doubt is not the enemy of your faith. At least doubt will cause you to run to Jesus, to ask questions of Jesus, and he will answer those questions. And we can cry out, help my unbelief, and he will help us. Amnesia, though, will crush your faith and fill you with fear. Why? 
because we walk in a gospel forgetfulness. We forget the Lord's ministry. We forget the Lord's presence. We forget the Lord's power. We forget the Lord's goodness. We forget Jesus Christ. And forgetfulness of God is a death blow to our faith. And the truth is listening to this sermon right now means that God has been faithful to you for every second of your life. From the moment of your first breath, God has sustained you. He has provided for your needs. He has withheld his wrath for your sins. He has not crushed you for opposing him. And he has given you the free gift of grace through his son, Jesus Christ, where he says, come to Jesus, find all your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God. This is proof of God's past faithfulness to sinners like you and me. And that's just the big things. Every one of us have small stories of unique evidences of God's grace to us, whether it be an answered prayer, a restored relationship, a bill that God paid, a church family to be a part of, a spouse or a child, his provision in a job or a home. All of us must capture these small, unique evidences of God's grace because in the present, when our faith is failing, we look to his past faithfulness and we're filled with hope and we're filled with confidence and we're filled with greater degrees of trust in our savior, Jesus. Our future is secure because our savior's already there. Look to the past, see how faithful he's been and grow in your trust that he will never stop being faithful. Final verse here. I kind of don't want to stop though. Like I just want to keep preaching. Like I'm enjoying this. Like, do you understand? Jesus is so worthy. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus alone is deserving of our worship. And that's all I'm trying to do today is incite worship of our Savior who, who alone is worthy of worship. And I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping right now. Like Jesus saw a, a small, just little sinner like me and he came and he rescued me. Are you kidding me? Like me? I know me, Katie knows me and that Jesus would save me. That's unbelievable. And that not only that, but he's saying, listen, I'll keep you. And, and in all the storms of your life and all the fears of your life, I'm gonna be with you. Trust me. Like, are you, that, that blows my mind. That's how worthy Jesus is, guys. If you get nothing else, see that. Back to the text. Mark 4, 41. And they, the disciples, were filled with great, or it could say greater fear, and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Listen, this is not hyperbole. The greatest question you can ask and answer ever in your life is the question that the disciples just ask. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God, and Jesus came to save man. And this is no trite thing. The disciples were terrified of Jesus at the first concrete realization of his deity. Encountering the presence of God produces fear in humanity, okay? We see that right here on the boat. Even though, even though the fear of nature was great, the fear of the presence of God was even greater. We see this in Exodus when Moses encounters the presence of God and almost dies. We see this in Isaiah when Isaiah encounters the presence of God and says, I am woeful. We see this when the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the presence of God. We see this in Mark 16 when the women encounter the risen Christ and they're terrified at the circumstance. Why? Why? Why are they terrified in the presence of God? Uh, this past week, Charles gave me a really cool sh uh, shirt that had a Charles Spurgeon quote on it, and it says this, as long as you and thy sins are at peace, God and thy soul must be at war. 
As long as you and your sins are at peace, God and your soul must be at war. This is why the disciples are terrified in the presence of God. They encountered his holiness and were aware of how unholy they are. He is God, they are not. He is perfect, they are not. They disobeyed his perfect demands and we shrink in his presence because we become viscerally aware of our own unworthiness and God's perfect holiness swallows us up in our sinful state. And there is only one answer. Who is this Jesus? As you ask that question, this Jesus is God who came to save sinners. God who came to rescue mankind. God who, or Jesus came to give us for forgiveness, give us life, give us his holiness, and it can only come from him. It can't come internally. Nothing else can save you. Listen to Exodus 14, when the Israelites encountered the holiness of God. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, and they did what? Believed in the Lord. The fear of God is meant to produce faith in God. Trust in him that he will give you all that he promises. Trust in Jesus that when he says you're forgiven, you are. Trust in Jesus when he says, I'm giving you a future, you have it. Trust in Jesus that you're no longer opposed to God, but you're reconciled to God so that when the presence of God comes to us, we don't shrink with fear, but we grow in greater awe and trust and worship that he and he alone is holy. What's up, girl? What do you got? Oh, thank you. Can I put that right there? How's that look? Who then is this Jesus? He is the God man who came to unite sinners back to himself. And let me tell you something. We need not fear because we have faith. Now here's the truth about our faith. Our faith has nothing to do with the amount of it and everything to do with the object of it. Okay? Jesus is the object of our faith and he is strong enough, he is good enough, he is wise enough, he is powerful enough. And so if our faith is feeble, that doesn't matter as long as it's in Jesus. If our faith is wavering, it doesn't matter as long as it's in Jesus. However small your faith might be, it is enough because Jesus is enough. So you need not fear tomorrow because Jesus is already there and he's gonna carry you right on through it. Make him and him alone the object of your faith and you're gonna be carried through this world now and forever. We need not fear because we have faith in Jesus. How do you answer this question? Who then is this Jesus? Is he your savior? Is he the one carrying you? Is he the one sustaining you? Is he the object of your faith? Let me offer to you today, make that choice. If you're not a Christian, pray, pray to Jesus to save you, to forgive your sins, to carry you, and he will right this moment. If you are a Christian, the only call in this text is this, greater confidence, okay? Greater trust. Jesus is good and powerful and enough. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. That if we need not fear sin and death, if we need not fear the future and eternity, we need not fear today because we have Jesus, our Savior, And so I pray for those who came in here today, weak and wavering, not sure that you would give them greater confidence that they would see and savor savor the exalted Christ. And for those uh, who, who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, would you give them greater understanding and confidence in him and him alone? Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.